This is Purple Radio On Demand. Hello and welcome to Sports Feed here on Purple Radio. I'm Archie Hodgson, your host for today, and I'm delighted to be joined by my co-host Ben Sharp, as well as pundits Angus Armour, Gabriel Radis and Ella Bicknell. We've got a packed show for you today with cricket, Formula One and Olympic news all to come. But to kick off the show, we're talking football. And there's no better place to start than the news that broke yesterday that Manchester City's two-year ban from European competition has been overturned. Now, Gabriel, just how crucial is this decision from a Manchester City perspective? perspective? I mean, it's huge. Um, I mean, it's massive for, in terms of their player retention. Uh, players like Kevin De Bruyne, who probably would have looked elsewhere being at the peak of their career and not having been able to play in the Champions League for two years would have been massive for Manchester City. Um, th- with regards to the FFP issue, I mean, it's, it's seismic because what you've ended up doing is um, basically allowing for a... Um, you're allowing a, an enormous club to sort of trample over financial fair play. I mean, without... You know, the, if there is as people have said, that the, the issue of time barring, if, if UEFA have either wrongly put forward a claim saying that Man City have circumvented the laws and um, UEFA are wrong, then that's an embarrassment on UEFA's front. If UEFA have done it and they're too late, then that's embarrassing again on UEFA's front. And if UEFA's claim, which they were very sure on, uh, has been refuted by the Court of Arbitration of Sport, CAS, um, then... I mean, basically, it all, it all points to either immense mishandling of, of evidence from, from UEFA or somehow uh, City have been able to, uh, to get away with one. Either way, it's enormous for the, for the Premier League. Um, the best teams being in the, in the best competition in the world is really helpful for both the club and for the league as, a, as an entity and as a, as a showcase in, in a, on a global audience level. Um, and... Uh, it's seismic for the teams in fifth, sixth, and seventh because you know you've got the likes of Wolves, Sheffield United, United, and uh, Manchester United that thought they would you know be able to secure a Champions League place with fifth spot, and now that's no longer the case, and that means that there's a, there's going to be a real dogfight for for teams in that sort of between third and seventh. I'm enormously excluding Arsenal and Spurs in this because that's just not a just not even a question. I know Arsenal are mathematically impossible it's impossible for them to become to get into the Champions League but it's virtually impossible for Spurs too um it's it makes for a very exciting end to the season in that respect but it's an enormous shame in a lot of circles it's a, it seems like to be a great opportunity for for the for Cass and for UEFA to really stamp down and and put out this issue of of financial doping which many many call it and as Gabe was alluding to there, Ben, um, well, for a long period of the season, it looked as if fifth position would be good enough for a Champions League spot. And obviously that's not the case anymore. Um, Man- Manchester City have mathematically qualified for the Champions League, which leaves just two, two spots um, remaining. At the moment, um, you, you've got Chelsea, Leicester and, and Manchester United. They look like the the... Uh, leading candidates for those positions, but you've still got Sheffield United and Wolves in with a, an outside chance. Who do you see getting those final two positions? Well, I think without doubt, I think Manchester United will get into the Champions League. Um, their form is just incredible. They're unbeaten in 18, despite drawing uh, yesterday against Southampton. Um, they should obviously should have won that game, losing uh, losing the all three points in the last uh, minute. But... Um, I think Manchester United and Leicester. Leicester, Leicester initially came back from a uh, from uh, obviously the COVID nineteen not in, not on great form, but after the draw against Arsenal and then the win, the, the next game they won, they look like they're back on their pattern of winning games. So, so I think they're the two strongest sides, especially after Chelsea lost to West Ham last week. I um, if I can jump in, I, I, I disagree with Ben in that respect only because. We saw Leicester's performance against Bournemouth on Sunday, where Bournemouth dismantled a Leicester side, uh, who are looking bereft of quality at the back. Uh, that formidable partnership of uh, Yonglu and uh, and Johnny Evans um, at the as the back two with with Casper's Michael in goal was sort of torn apart by a Bournemouth side that have not been able to score for love nor money. 
um, including Dominic Solanke, who played, who's played about 39 Premier League games. And not scored. The, the classic stat was that Dominic Solanke had, had, had more England caps than he had goals in the Premier League. And now he's somehow managed to overturn that. Um, so I, I think Leicester, Leicester have got a very tough run in of games. They've got Spurs up in the next couple of weeks. Um, and Spurs will be looking for a Europa League finish and also to finish above Arsenal. Um, and Wolves have looked really, really good. I mean, Chelsea, I think, are going to scra- scrape in by the, by the skin of their teeth. I think they've just got too much quality. Um, and I agree with Ben in, in, the, in the form of United. Um, and I think it's just going to be the Wolves that are the one that are going to miss out. And I think we might see Leicester even drop to, to sixth, which was unfathomable uh, at the turn of the year when they were 15 points clear of the Champions League places. I mean, they were... You know, there was a, a time when they were discussed in the same breath of, of Liverpool um, for the title. And that's just, just a long, long time ago. And I think the issue with Brendan Rodgers, as has been traditionally the case, that it wasn't really tested at Celtic because they were so you know, head and shoulders above every other team in the Scottish Premiership. Um, the, the issue that he's had at Liverpool, the issues that he's had at, at Leicester, um, have been that he's been very, very good until it's gone bad. And then he's not been able to reverse what seems to be quite a, a, a quick slide into, um, into quite poor quality football. I mean, he still play, tries to play with an attacking brand and, 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 a, and a watchable brand of football. But it, against Bournemouth on Sunday night, they were appalling. But really, uh, to a, for a team that look, have looked dead and buried for, for some weeks, so, so, yeah, I mean, I'm worried for them. As, as you said, it was, it was a very poor, albeit uncharacteristic performance from Leicester against Bournemouth. And I think quite rightly they've received a lot of criticism for that. But do you think, Gabe, that perhaps that criticism has gone over the, over the top considering just how good a season Leicester have had? I mean, I think you've got to remember that they are punching well above their weight. I mean, they, they have such limited buying power comparatively um, when, when you consider the, the teams in and around them. So do you think, I mean, when, when all said and done, even if Leicester do miss out on a top four performance, you'd have to say it's been a successful campaign for them. I mean, I think if you, if you told a Leicester fan at the start of the season, you'll have a European place, irrespective of what European competition, I think they would have bitten your hand off. Um, but I think, it's all perspective, really. And at the turn of the year, you saw a formidable Leicester team that weren't conceding. They had a very strong back four. Madison was, in, was on fire. Jamie Vardy, top goal scorer. I mean, he's still top goal scorer in the Premier League, which is a some, no mean feat. Um, Wilfred Ndidi, that pivot at centre midfield, centre defence midfield. Um, and they, that sort of spine has been so integral and so pivotal in, in Leicester's success this season. And, and the fact that... Vardy went a few games not scoring. Madison's lost form a bit. Indeed, he was injured and he's come back, but he's not been the same as he has been over the past few months. And, and the, as I've mentioned, that centre-defensive partnership kind of falling apart a bit. And Schmeichel's mistake being indicative of also some, some, some issues there um, on the weekend is, is indicative of a spine that the fact that, one, the, the, the fact that Leicester rely on that spine so much that when it doesn't work, it really doesn't work. So for them, European, a European spot will be amazing financially. It will be great for the fans. They were amazing when they got to the Champions League quarterfinals a few years ago after their, Champions, after their, their title win and you know, playing. They only just narrowly lost to Atletico Madrid in that time um, in the quarters. Uh, but I worry for them going into next season, particularly when there's a short gap between this season and next because they're sliding and whilst they might still come fifth come sixth they might even come fourth with with a sort of stumbling into those european spots um i worry for them going into next year in terms of falling into sort of mid-table obscurity i mean let's not let's not beat around the bush and not going to get relegated um they're too good for that but uh the issue is next year when they have european football they'll have to play two games a week They'll be under a lot of pressure. The squad, which is fairly deep, but not deep, uh, nowhere near as deep as the, top, as the other top six uh, sides, as the top six sides, um, will struggle to maintain that form and that success over a period of time, and particularly coming off the back of what has been a really shoddy restart for them. Now, if we talk about their opponents for, for a second, Ben, Bournemouth, that was 
an absolutely crucial victory for them in, in their quest to, to escape um, the, the relegation zone. They're now sitting three points off Watford and, and West Ham with three games to play. Do you think, although they've left it late, do you think they, they can still get out of their current predicament? Personally, I don't think so. I mean, I'm just looking at their fixtures now. They've got, coming up, they've got uh, Man City, they've got Southampton, and then they've got Everton. And I don't see them winning away at, South, at Man City. I don't see them beating Southampton, and I think they might scrape a point at Everton. So personally, I think, in my opinion, the bottom three are going to stay the bottom three because of the run-ins they've got. And I think Watford and like the likes of Watford and West Ham will just about get away with it purely on the basis, not because they're going to win games, but because the others are going to, aren't, because the others aren't, going to, aren't going to win games, if you get what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Oh, Gabe, are you willing to put your neck on the line and, and say that Aston Villa and all Bournemouth could get out of the, the bottom three, or, or do you think the table will uh, stay as it is? I'll be honest, I, I would love them both to get out um, because I think Bournemouth have been a breath of fresh air to the Premier League uh, in the seasons that they've been here. I mean, obviously, this season has been particularly poor and they deserve to on the balance of play go down. But they've been great for the Premier League, a great advert of, of attacking football under Eddie Howe. Uh, and Aston Villa is a great historic club, you know, uh, sort of uh, European Cup winners um, of old. The thing is, the the massive game will be West Ham United versus Watford on the weekend. Um or in, in the coming few days. Um, obviously, West Ham and Watford are on joint on 34 points. That's three points above Bournemouth. Um, if one of those sides win, I think that's, that's them safe, and that leaves the other side vulnerable to, you know, if Bournemouth pick up a win against Southampton or a win against Everton on the final day, which they could because I know Ben said that Everton are a strong side. Southampton are also have been very strong of late, as you can see from their performance against Manchester United of late. Um, they, you know, they could still pick up when they need to. Um, Villa, again, they have a massive, massive clash against, I'm pretty sure it's West Ham United on the final day of the season. Um, and that's, that could see, that could be the, the, the do or die. Um, in, my, in my book, the way I see it, I think, I think one of either Bournemouth or Villa will go down. It, it breaks my heart to say that I think Villa will probably be the one that, the ones that go four points in three games is just a bit too much to, to surpass. I think, you know, I really worry for Watford. Um, I know they picked up two back-to-back wins, but it's that three points and a, and a sort of worrying goal difference of minus 21. And Bournemouth, if they can, if they can pick up a win against Southampton, will mean it'd be an incredibly entertaining final day of the season. And, you know, I, I hope for that, for the, for their sake that they stay up, you know, they've got, Watford have got Arsenal on the final day of the season. You know, that's not a no-mean feat. That's not an easy tie. And, and Arsenal will want European football. So I think Bournemouth, I think realistically, 35 points are going to save you. So um, so if it, it all really comes down to the Watford-West Ham United game coming up. It is set to be a really exciting relegation battle. It does look like it, it will probably go down to the last day of the season. Now, moving on to cricket, and, and last week saw the much-anticipated return of Test Match Cricket when England welcomed the, the West Indies to the Rose Bowl in Southampton. Now, Ben, West Indies uh, ended up beating England by four wickets. Who were the standout performers for you? Well, you had the likes of Jason Holder, who took six wickets in the first innings. You had the likes of uh, Blackwood, who scored a great 95 um, in the second innings, I personally think that the West Indies were always going to be a strong side if they could get runs on the board because their bowling attack is really, in my opinion, underrated. They've got pace, they've got swing, uh, they've got everything, in my opinion. They've got a decent spinner in Rushton Chase um, who can hold up an end. So I really think that if they back well, they can uh, continue to perform well in English conditions. And Gabe, a lot was made before the, the test of the England selectors' controversial decision to omit Stuart Broad from the the, uh, the team. Do you think in the the wake of England's defeat, um, it's, it's kind of obvious that they, they got that one wrong? Yeah, unfortunately. Um, I mean, I like Mark Wood. He's a Durham boy, I think, um, but he only picked up two wickets in the uh, in the whole test series, in the whole test match, and and that's kind of worrying for a fast bowler, um, particularly 
in light of the fact that his position was not safe, that Stuart, dropping Stuart Broad was, was an, uh, an unconventional decision. And so I think he might be replaced by Stuart Broad in the next, the next text, test match. And I think uh, on, the, on the batting end that uh, Joe Denley will, will make way for, for Joe Root, obviously, who comes back after the birth of his son, if I'm not mistaken. And ben, which areas do you think um, are, are key for England if they want to, to win the second test? Well, it's their middle-order partnerships that have sort of mutually been the strength of England in past. In past, You've had the likes of Ben Stokes and Josh Butler batting well together. You've had Joe Root and Ben Stokes bat- batting well together. And they just, they just collapsed, didn't they, on their, their, on the, in their second innings? They went from, I believe, two, uh, two, uh, 240-something for three to 279 for eight. And it just isn't good enough for an England side who let's face it, are aiming to win away in Australia. And I kind of understand the Stuart Broad's decision because we are, if you, it depends on what view you take. Do we take the long-term view that we are building towards the way ashes? Or do we take the view that we should win tests now? I know we've got the World Test Championship, which we can get points for now. But I, I, in my opinion, we, I think we should be building towards trying to beat Australia in, in their backyard rather than necessarily trying to win test matches at the same time. And I think the likes of Mark Wood, you need pace in Australia, and the likes of Mark Wood and Joffrey Archer provide that. So I personally think it wasn't a bad decision to admit Stuart Broad. I think he will come back in for the next test. But I don't necessarily think that meant that England lost the, was the reason England lost the game. And do you think, Gabe, assuming that Broad does come back in, uh, into the team for the second test, He'll have that real hunger to to prove the selectors wrong, and, and that can actually lead him to to victory in the match. I think he's at his best really when he's sort of doubted. Um, you've seen plenty of times. Uh, there's times when he's picked up five wicket hauls, done, had good knocks with the bat. Although obviously, I mean, the last time he's had a good knock with the bat is some years ago. <laughs> Everyone sort of worked out that he couldn't play off the back foot. Um, uh, he it's always come off the back of doubters off the back of sort of controversy as to whether he's been selected or not and he's an incredibly resilient um cricketer and he you could tell you could see him on the sideline he was fuming that he wasn't playing um and i think coming in for wood as as one can expect will be the case that he'll have a point to prove and he'll want to get at the the top order of the west indies top order and the likes of blackwood and, and brathwaite that that sort of tore up the uh, the uh, the english attack Thank you very much uh, to both of you for your thoughts. Now I'm going to pass over to Ben, who is going to be talking American football. Thanks, Archie. Thank you very much. Now we're going to talk about American football and possibly the biggest story this week was the $500 million contract awarded to uh, Patrick Mahomes of the Kansas City Chiefs. Uh, Gabriel, just give us an insight. Does he deserve that amount of money? Is it risky from the... the uh, Chiefs to give them such a, l- a large amount of money at such a young age, and do you think that they will ultimately benefit from it? I mean, these things always come with risks, um, but he's a generational talent. I think that's definitely what people would say, and what you can see from his couple of seasons in the in the NFL that he's been, you know, head and shoulders above any quarterback. You know, a Super Bowl winning quarterback, is, you know, is not something to be sniffed at. You know, in particularly as a sort of third season quarterback and you know his first season was hardly a a season at all his first full season two years ago was incredible and his numbers are just insane I mean you 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 it's actually hard to fathom how he's getting such great numbers and and the thing is as well that he is so versatile he's so unlike any other quarterback that we've seen and we're so used to the traditional sort of Mitch Trubisky-esque quarterbacks of just kind of, I mean, you know, we've grown up on Tom Brady being very successful at kind of just doing what he has to do. Um, but this guy is is special. And in a new young age of, of quarterbacks, of the sort of Jimmy G's, the, you know, Deshaun Watson, uh, Deshaun Jackson, also an incredible um, uh, talent, the, this guy is the best of the bunch. And, you know, I mean, it pains me as a, as a Bears fan that we didn't take him in the draft, but we didn't. The Chiefs were, were right to take him. Genius. And, you know, the guy's got a baseball-sized contract because he's been, you know, he's been unbelievable. He's been, just as I said, head and shoulders above the rest for two years now. Is there a risk, obviously, because of the salary cap in American football, 
that they've spent so much money on a quarterback that they won't be able to provide him with the weapons that he needs around him, the wide receivers, the tight ends, like Travis Kelsey, um, those sorts of players. So, for example, if we look at Tom Brady's stint at the New England Patriots, he was never the highest paid player in the league. He was actually on about $20 million a year, which is not to be sniffed at, obviously. But um, he, they, he deliberately kept his salary demands low so that they could, they could provide him with weapons around him. Do you think that's a risk for the uh, Kansas City Chiefs? Yeah, I mean, I think it is a risk. Obviously, you had with Tom Brady, you had like Gronk, who was his big, his big outlet. And, you know, Travis Kelsey is enormous for, for the Kansas City Chiefs as well. Um, you've had in the past like Tariq Hill and, and, and those, those sorts of players that have been instrumental in the Chiefs' offense. Um, and defensively is actually where they've at times been lacking. The thing is with a guy like this on your offense is that he brings the best out of the players around him and that you're paying the money because you know that not only are the players going to turn up to be in his office or offense, but they're also going to, you're going to get the best kind of numbers out of them considering he makes space out of nothing. He, you know, if you just run the right routes, if you're on the right routes, um, then you'll, uh, then he'll find you. And that's all you really need. I mean, like, you know, we, we don't, you don't want to overramp the importance of a quarterback, but it is literally the most important position in in American football. Like, you, if you don't have a good quarterback, you're not going to score any points. And if Kansas City are taking the opinion that let's spend all our money on on a quarterback, but he is, we're locking him down for ten years, and you know, due to the salary cap, you know, we can build a young sort of fresh team around him, and not you know, sort of repurpose the money on sort of bigger talents that we'd normally spend on bigger talents on on just on, on paying and, and maintaining Patrick Mahomes then it makes sense because the guy is the best player out there now we move I mean I completely agree with you I mean I think that it's worth spending the money he, he not only will his quality attract big players but I think that it will also mean that potentially we see um we see big players lowering their salary demands just to play with him. Um, I just want to talk about Cam Newton. He's moved to the New England Patriots, really struggled, previous MVP, regular season MVP, and the Super Bowl uh, runner-up. Um, he's going for about, he's going for 7.5, he's going for, sorry, a, a million dollars a year, the minimum uh, he can get, uh, up to 7.5 million, depending on bonuses and, and how much he plays. Do you think New England has picked up a gem in him if they can get him fit? Yeah, I mean, the thing is with, with Cam, obviously he went um, in the 2011 NFL draft first pick. You know, he was, he's been at the Carolina Panthers for eight years now. And, you know, he, he's had some really up and down seasons. You know, he came close to winning a Super Bowl uh, only to be denied by the Denver Broncos, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and... What the Patriots have, have realized, and Bill Belichick has, has realized, is that this guy is down and out. Over the past couple of years, he's struggled with a shoulder injury. He's struggled with, with various different mobility things. He's looked like a, player, like a shadow of himself, really. And he needs to rebuild his career. And that's what the Pats, the Pats are really good at. Um, they're sort of taking these old players, taking players that have not, Julian Edelman's a good example, have not really done much for a few years. But but really want to prove themselves, and Cam Newton has the has the kind of the targets in mind. You say the one million is a minimum is a minimum. He knows that if he doesn't perform, that's what he's getting. And it's nothing to what he was going. You know, you could have got if he you know maintained his sort of twenty fifteen levels and uh, and sort of for a couple of years. Um, but he can, he also has the potential of seven and a half million, and that's an enormous sort of uh, swing. Um, so he has the incentive. He's there's no doubt about it. The, the guy's a player, you know, MVP in 2015, offensive rookie of the year in 2011, three Pro Bowls. He's not, he's, you know, he's not, he's not a bad player. You don't become a bad player overnight. Um, whether he's, you know, a bit too injury prone is is another thing. But I think the Patriots have have recognised that this is a transitional year for them. That they've lost their the best player perhaps to ever play the NFL to ever been in the NFL in, in Tom Brady. Um, and they are the most successful, certainly, um, and that they've got. They now need to rebuild around someone else. And if it's someone that needs to has a point to prove, then so be it. That's the kind of brittle, you know, sort of player uh, that 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 kind of 
has to has to prove something to the audience, the the public that Bill Belichick likes working with. Do you think Belichick's the right coach to be working with a player who isn't ready made? I mean, obviously he obviously developed Tom Brady, but after that they um after that he sort of wanted to get rid of him and only Robert Kraft kept him on, to be honest. Do you think that the um Belichick's style will mesh with uh, Cam Newton's flair. The guy's an eccentric, <laughs> that's for sure. Um, and he definitely has like his sort of quirks. Um, I think Bill Belichick won't probably try and rein that in. I don't think that's in his style. I don't think it's in his. Uh, I I don't think it's in his best interests. Um, but yeah, I mean, undoubtedly, it's going to be a very different vibe to the sort of austere Tom Brady who kind of just came in and out and sort of were consummate professional. And, and there's not to say Cam Newton isn't, but Cam Newton has definitely got more of the sort of extroverted elements to him that are not just solely based on the, on the football field. Um, I mean, only time will tell. That's a, that's a sort of cop-out answer, but, um, but it's hard to say whether Bill Belichick will... I mean, he hasn't had to deal with a different quarterback for the past 20 years. You know, he's not had, he's not had that, that experience for a very long time. But he's a top, top coach. And, you know, I expect him to get, I expect Cam and, and, and Belichick to get the Patriots into, into the playoffs, you know, because they always do. And moving on to Tom Brady, who has moved to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, along with his good friend Rob Gronkowski, who's come out of retirement after four years. Would you say that they've turned uh, them into a super, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers into a Super Bowl contender now, purely based on those two pick, those two transfers? Uh, no, I wouldn't say so. I mean, I, they're big players. It, it will attract crowds if the crowds could come, um, and you know, it definitely attracts shirt sales. But the Bucks have a lot more to do. I mean, the, the, the thing is, the thing with the Bucks were the last year with Bill Arians and, and everyone sort of thought that they had a lot more to give than they actually gave um so there's definitely semblance of a good team in there um i don't know if you just parachute in a couple of patriots players whether that will help them just immediately become super bowl contenders i don't think that propels them above the kansas city chiefs for example i don't think that's that makes them better than the 49ers um but it certainly makes them a better team uh certainly makes them a playoff viable team um but you have to remember tom brady's 42 gronk is old as well he's retired for a bit as well and and these aren't players that are at the peak of their career if anything i would say that tampa bay were probably trying to you know create a bit of hype around that team create some shirt sales create some interest um then to to build off that from a marketing point of view and it's slightly cynical but i i can't see tom brady suddenly being parachuted into an average team Head of, head of like sort of a Jameis Winston um, who was there prior to, to Tom Brady um, suddenly making that team a, you know suddenly making that team like a 16-0 and team you know it's just not going to happen Yeah I mean we've seen it with the Cleveland Browns they, the fact they brought in Odell Beckham Jr. and that sort of whilst they had a better season than last they still weren't playoff contenders um, Just moving on back to the Kansas City Chiefs there's sort of and the uh, 49ers there's Sort of with the NFL, there has been sort of with the teams that make the Super Bowl, there has sort of been a Super Bowl hangover in that they don't tend to be successful in the next season. I mean, I don't particularly worry about the Kansas City Chiefs purely on the basis that they've got a superb talent like the Holmes. But do you worry about the 49ers? Yeah, I think anyone should. You know, I think if we just look history, recent history tells us that, you know, the Rams struggled after losing that even the Eagles after winning the Super Bowl two years ago struggled. Um, the Atlanta Falcons after literally having the prize within reach against the New England Patriots, they lost that Super Bowl final and had a, a sort of very average season and so, uh, sort of plateaued enormously at a lower level since. Um, for the 49ers, they again were very close to winning the thing. Um, and that's, you know, it hurts a lot and it's enormously, it's very difficult to come back from that um, swinging next year. I mean, they have a good team, they have a young team, they have, uh, you know, an exciting team, they have a very strong defense. Um, you know, that's not changed. So there's cause for optimism. 
but it's natural that you know they had a they had a fantastic fantastic season last year you know i mean if i'm not right if i i think i'm right in thinking that they were they were top of the nfc um and yeah. um uh, and i don't think they're going to re- replicate that i think they'll be a playoff team i don't I, you know they they're definitely you know a top 6 team in in the nf in the nfc but um i don't think they will be able to you know quite live up to the to to last years i think that's the thing really you kind of in the nfl it, it's that you know obviously amazon prime of that all or nothing mantra uh for, for nfl teams um it is really all or nothing and, and you know when you are so close to everything but you get nothing it's gonna hit you it's gonna really it's gonna really suck and and, and that's and that's where we where they stand at the moment and finally i left the probably the biggest story to last because it's such a controversial topic and such a such a uh, a topic that can be discussed quite widely um the washington redskins they are they announced in the last five hours that they're going to change their name obviously i personally think that's the right decision to do but how do you think this will affect them changing their name i mean it doesn't happen often. I mean, the last time it happened was in the mid-90s with the Houston Oilers that then became the Tennessee Oilers that then changed to the Tennessee Titans. So, you know, franchises relocate. The Oakland Raiders, the Las Vegas Raiders, the Vegas Raiders. That, that is, that's very, very normal. Um, but um, with respect to an actual, to, to, you know, to a tag, a, ta- a franchise name, uh, as opposed to a location that that is very very infrequent and and for that to change will obviously have enormous ramifications on the actual on the club and the structure itself but i think you know it, these things are sometimes necessary in, in for the course of change for, for in order to progress you know i mean we we cannot continue to have redskins being the name of of an nfl team past 2020 i mean it just does not make sense if you if we are so committed to the idea of progress if we're so committed to the idea of inclusion then we cannot condone what is a racial slur to being that being the name of a, a, of an nfl team so it will be difficult for the team in terms of going forward in finding a new identity you know that things are so rooted within the name of the team and that the, it's been the Washington Redskins for an incredibly, a very, very long time, if not since since the dawn of time for the Washington for the, for the Washington side. Um, but they'll recover. It'll take a couple of years, probably. You know, they'll have to restructure things. They'll have to think about how to rename things in the most sensitive way, and think about how to uh, appeal to their fan base. Um, but it's not going to be easy, but you know, these things aren't easy. You know, we talk about having difficult conversations are the ones that are important and, and making difficult decisions are the ones that are often important too. And, and, um, you know, without getting bogged down into the actual nature of the, of the, of the slur and the, the nature of the term, you know, the NFL, the team, they've decided that it needs to get, it needs to be changed. It's getting changed. And that, and that's what, and that's what's important. And, and I look forward to finding out what Washington's new name will be. Okay, thank you very much, Gabe. That was a great segment on the NFL. Thank you. I'm now going to be joined by Angus Armour, an aerospace engineer, uh, who's going to talk, to talk to me about the two F1 races we've had in Austria. Angus, how are you doing? Welcome to the show. Hello, I'm good, Ben. How are you? Yeah, very good. Um, we talked, we, we both watched the F1 last week together. Yeah. Socially distance permitting. And give us a recap of the first the first couple of races which both took place at the Red Bull Ring in Austria. Well, in my view, the only similarity between the two races was the track because they they were hugely different races in both what how they turned out, who the who the winner was obviously, and also you can see that a lot of teams, ex- with the exception of Ferrari, learned from their mistakes that they made in the first one, particularly Mercedes, who got a a one-two in the end in in the second one and were certainly you could hear over the radio that they were struggling through the first one and they clearly fixed those problems and well you can see that a lot of the teams had i think the word slowed down a bit over over the course of lockdown and there's this whole plethora of retirements that they were having so you know you've got like about let's say 
half of them were engine problems, but then there was like suspension problems and electronic problems. And so you could see that teams had not, teams weren't as well prepared as they probably should have been for the first race. Um, yeah, I think Leclerc did amazingly in the first race and he said it was probably the best race of his life. And if it wasn't for Lando storm through the, through the last few laps, Charles Leclerc should have got a lot more recognition for what he did, but then probably that was taken away in the second race. So yeah, they were quite different races, Ben. And in terms of the second race, is it, was it back to business as usual? A Mercedes one, two with a, with a Red Bull third place in the name in Verstappen. Are, is that going to be the, the, the nature of the season? Are we going to see Mercedes dominating as usual? Is that going to be the case? I, I would expect so, yes. I mean, there's no, there's no one else realistically that could get anywhere near them. I mean, there's the Red Bulls and Max, Max Verstappen specifically. Alex is a very competent driver, but he's not someone who could compete with the, with the Mercedes drivers on, on a regular basis at the very least. So he, tried, he tried in the first Austrian Grand Prix and it didn't go so well. But I think, yeah, it will be potentially a repeat of like 2015, 2016, where they were the only team capable of winning races, let alone winning, winning a championship. And so, yeah, it doesn't mean it, it's going to be a, an un, a poor season necessarily, because, you know, these last two races have actually been very entertaining to watch. But I'd say Mercedes have pretty much nipped this one in the bag. Yeah. Now, moving on to a more controversial issue and something that can be discussed uh, further down the line. The qualifying at the Steering Grand Prix was absolutely fantastic because it was was wet. And we rarely see a wet qualifying or a wet race. Do we think the FIA, the governing body of uh, Formula One, uh, should introduce wet races after this exciting qualifying? Well, it's funny you should say that, really, because actually Bernie Eccleston, about 10 years ago, about 2011, suggested this for Formula One. And it was, it, it, obviously, it didn't come into play. But in my opinion, it wouldn't, it wouldn't go so well, to be honest, because it's not the rain itself. It's not the fact that the track is wet that's the, that's the excitement behind it. It's more the, you don't know when it's going to start raining, when, you, when it's going to stop raining. For like, let's take, Germany, as an example, Germany last year, which is like voted the best race of the last decade or so, it wasn't all the drivers driving in the wet that made it exciting. It was the constant, the tracks drying up, the tracks getting wet again, the tracks drying up. That whole, that whole, the antics that came with that was what made it exciting. And artificially wetting the the tracks wouldn't have that excitement. It's like because the what what Bernie Eccleston suggested was that it would rain in inverted commas for a fixed amount of time either like for 20 laps during the race or 10 laps at the end but they'd still get two laps worth of warning and it's the the rigidity and the artificialness of of that sort of implementation that isn't actually wouldn't go so well certainly is there also a safety issue at hand in the sense that obviously if you artificially, we, we look, saw the qualifying was delayed uh, on Saturday yeah. because of safety. Do you think that there's a safety issue in the sense that if you introduce a wet race, you could potentially see more drivers crashing out and potentially fatali- a fata- another fatality in F1, which is something we really don't want to see? Yeah, well, I mean, the last fatality that did happen, Jules Bianchi was, was doing a wet race. And so there is obviously the more danger to them. And that's why they would have to, Formula One, if they were going to implement it, would have to have a, a reliable, have it reliably on course to happen, as it were. So all the teams know when it's going to happen to minimise the, minimize the, da- minimize the danger. Because ultimately, wet races are more dangerous. And... Formula One introducing wet races is them actively making the sport more dangerous. And which, you know, obviously there's a load of fans who would, would love, would relish at that idea. But actually, Formula One itself would be held accountable ultimately for making Formula One more dangerous, which is not something they want want to be branded with. So I think if they if they want 
to implement more wet races, they should put certain certain tracks, certain events at different times of the year. So, or go for tracks that are more likely to rain at. So, like they they took Malaysia out, and that was that had quite frequent wet races. But also, you know, Silverstone typically is mid July, which is the driest part of British climate. If they want want it to be more likely a wet race, and you know, you could put it in September or early on in March sort of thing. So I don't think put artificially introducing it wouldn't actually help anything. Um, Liberty Media took over F1 yeah. from Bernie Eccleston a couple of years ago. Do you think they've made an improvement? And do you think F1's becoming a much more fan-friendly sport because Liberty Media bought them out? To be honest, watching it, there isn't a huge amount of difference that the fan would fan would notice necessarily so I don't, I don't know they're more responsible for viewing rights and that sort of thing as opposed to how the how the how the average f1 fan can watch it well i mean obviously you know it's not on mainstream tv but actually once you're watching the race there isn't really that much difference between a race now and a race before necessarily so and any any changes to the racing aspect of Formula One, which is a pretty big aspect to it, is controlled by the FAA and not Liberty Media. So I don't think a huge it's not going to change it hugely in terms of the regulations and the rules and the way drivers race in 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 the current circumstances. No. But do you think gives fans more access to the drivers, Liberty Media owning it? I mean we I mean, I mean, we've seen the likes of the F1 Drive to Survive documentary on Netflix, yeah. uh, more Twitter and Facebook uh, uh, stuff during the races. What do you think? Oh, that's I hadn't really considered that initially, but yes, that is certainly an aspect. But also, there's a lot of the drivers take care of a lot of PR themselves. Like they, Liberty Media or not a lot of drivers would have their own Instagram accounts and be able to interact with their fans that way. And, and so, and also the teams could have access to their own Instagram accounts or Twitter accounts with or without a different media owner. But yeah, there is the, the Netflix documentaries, which, which certainly give more of an insight. Yeah. But also what the, what the teams want to give out still is up to the teams and up to the drivers, I would say. And finally, what is going on at Ferrari? I mean, 10th and 11th in, yeah. like, in the Austrian Grand Prix qualifying, 10th and 11th in the, uh, in the steering Grand Prix qualifying. And yes, Charles Leclerc got a podium, but it wasn't in, in the first race, but it was an incident-packed race. They yeah. came, he came nowhere, really. For a Ferrari in the second, well, they both got not not sorry, yeah. um, they both think, uh, got retired. What is happening at Ferrari? Why have they suddenly slowed down and sort of gone back into the midfield? Well, I think first off, I think it's important to say that in the steering Grand Prix they were certainly unlucky because that I wouldn't say that's to do with their mechanical problems that they've been having. That was just Charles Leclerc made a a bad bad move and knock them both out of the race which you know it happens and Charles Leclerc owned, owned up to it but I think ultimately it comes down to around it was around the F1 testing back in February where they had a settlement we don't they didn't want to get they didn't disclose what it was but the FIA had noticed I think a loophole in the Ferrari engine spec and so they, they banned it, basically, I think. I don't know what it is, but it's things to do with fuel flow or, or the way they monitor the fuel flow. And obviously, Ferrari don't want people to know what happened with it because then, then other teams like Mercedes or Renault would know how to improve their own cars. And so, But ultimately, since that loophole and that settlement with the FIA has happened... Ferrari been nowhere and so oh, it, it comes down to that we no one except Ferrari knows what what 
what happened there, but yeah, it's it lies very heavily on that settlement with the FIA. Love to know what happened there, but yeah, it all but ultimately boils down to that. And finally, um, what is dual dual axis steering, the new steering system that Mercedes have got on their cars, which apparently helped to reheat the reheat the tires after slowing down, say after a safety car. What yeah. what is it, and what benefits does it really provide? Is it does it is it a game changer? The angle of the wheels relative to the road. Obviously, we think of the most obvious angle that you want is you want both your wheels pointing straight forward and so and then when you go around a bend they'll point left or right but when it comes to managing the tires you know the huge great big flat pieces of rubber or whatever the tire material is and you can help manage how much of that where where the where on these tires will be depending on the angle of the tires relative to the road and so you can kind of it's called i think i can't remember what's called it's like toe in or toe out where the wheels point slightly outwards or slightly inwards and that, that obviously helps with tire management i think that's what their main concern with it was because obviously you hear lewis house and always going on about his tires are tires are going this and the other and obviously if that's the case the team can say well move your tires in a bit use a different part of the tire and you, you'll be fine but ultimately it also comes down to if you move your tires out a bit, you can turn around corners better because it makes the car less stable. And if you move your tires in a bit, it makes it more stable. And so what you can do is as you're coming up to a corner, you move the tires out a bit. And so you get better, better traction around the corner. And as you're going along straights, you move them parallel or slightly in. So you increase speed and you can increase the stability along the straights. So yeah that's what it is and it's i think it's you can see he moves his steering wheel backwards and forwards i don't know i don't know the ins and the outs there's probably specific method behind it because obviously if you pull it too far it'll come off the steering wheel but it ultimately boils down to that and it doesn't look like a particularly complicated system but mercedes has been saying that they've been trying to develop this thing for two two three years now and they've only just implemented it now so it's it's something i think they may have deliberately only come in with it at this point so that other teams would not have a chance to copy them so yeah i think they 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 have the money to invest in these sort of projects and they were lucky that the fia said it was legal so yeah and finally angus before you go who's going to win the formula one world championship uh I think the only two contenders are obviously the Mercedes drivers, Valtteri and Lewis. I want to say it's Valtteri, but I'd, I'd likely say it's Lewis Hamilton because, you know, he's, he's looking to beat Michael Schumacher's record. I mean, you would be if you're in that sort of position. But, you know, if, if Valtteri Bottas has a chance at winning a world championship, it's this year. So, and a lot of people say, actually, actually no, he, he's going to be there next year. But... If he's going to win it, this is probably his best year, particularly because he is quite inconsistent. And obviously this being a shorter year will mean that less, less races will be bad for him. But be, be, will, I can't uh, work against him, as it were. So, yeah. Okay, thank you, Angus. Thank you for your time. And w- welcome to Sportsfeed. Uh, I now pass over to Archie Hodgson to discuss Olympic preparations with Ella Bicknell. Thank you very much, Ben. Yes, I'm joined by our resident Olympic expert, um, Ella. Um, I wouldn't say that, but <laughs> carry on. A lot, a lot more to than me. Um, but I, I suppose there's no better place to start than the news that breaks today that Jess Varnish, the former Team GB cyclist, lost her employment tribunal appeal against British Cycling. What were your thoughts on that decision? Well, it's, it's an interesting, controversial topic because the way British Cycling and a lot of other sports or Team GB sports work in that um, the way that they employ, I wouldn't, wouldn't even use the word employ their cyclists, 
workers to employ their athletes, this is the whole problem that um, Jess Varnish is contesting, is it's sort of a system of being like a student getting a grant or a scholarship. Um, it's not as like tenable or as legally sound as being an employee. And that's what Jess wanted, a sort of employee relationship where she could get a pension, where she can get sick pay. Um, and also on top of all of this, so she's got a problem with that and how she was dropped, um, her funding was dropped just before the Rio Olympics and it being that kind of relationship, not a strong employee legal relationship. Um, that's how, not they got away with it, but that's how it happened. Whereas she argues that there should be a much more stronger, tighter format for um, athletes, Team GB athletes. But tied in with that, there's also a problem that she's bringing up with sexism that she has faced during this whole process and during the process just before that her funding was dropped. Um, so a Team GB coach called Shane Sutton, when she, um, when she was leaving the sport and she was like, what am I going to do? I want to carry on cycling. He said to her, go and have a baby, which you wouldn't say that to a male athlete. And it just was completely lack of understanding and casual sexism um, there. So it's a tricky case because it's, again, it's, it is an athlete arguing for employment rights, but also there's the undertone of sexism in there, which complicates it. So I can understand why she's devastated, but I have, I, I think we need to hear more from her and to see whether or not um, she applies again. Um, yeah, we'll have to see. So do you think um, e even though she didn't win her appeal, this case is, um, it's really shone a, a much needed light on sexism within uh, cycling? Definitely, yeah. Um, in, t in all aspects of careers, not just sports, um, there are certain employment rights that don't necessarily favour women. So sick pay, maternity leave, and especially in sport, that's really, really difficult, allowing for a woman to leave, leave training, leave com the competitive world for a short while and then come back. That's really hard for them, but it's part of their natural way of life that they want to leave and have a baby etc um and Jess wasn't even wanting that and that's not even related to her case um and also just generally sport is such a high it's such high risk to be an athlete in the world of sport um unless you're one of the big big famous players who've got massive sponsorship um there's certain things that you can't necessarily protect you don't know whether or not you'll still be in the field two years time that's why pension and sick pay are really important things to fight for and it's a it's a tricky tricky and controversial debate really uh, of course coronavirus has hampered the the summer sporting schedule unfortunately but in recent weeks um the, the bbc has been reminding us of some of the the greatest moments in in recent years um with replays from from the archives i was just wondering if there have any if there have been kind of any particular events you've really enjoyed watching back again? Um, definitely tennis. So um, tennis is no longer on the back burner now. Tennis is um, back on in other ways, and I'll talk about that in a sec. But um, I've been really enjoying the Wimbledon coverage, actually. So they've been broadcasting some of the old games, some of the old moments, and there have been massive polls going around about what's everyone's favourite Wimbledon moments. And for men... 39% um, of the British public said the best ever Wimbledon moment was the 2008 final, Federer versus Nadal, when Nadal won, I think it was 6-4, Oh yeah, I've got it written here. Um, and then second um, was when Murray won Wimbledon for Britain. Like we, of course, that was such a massive moment. Do you guys remember that back in 2013? Um, first win for Britain since... Fred Perry, I think, so like ages ago. And then in the women's category, it was a really close match between Lindsay Davenport and Venus Williams in 2005. Uh, Williams won, it was a brutal game, almost lasting um, three hours. And that was the favorite women's moment. But yeah. Um, but which which, is, yours, which is your favorite moment? See, I got into watching tennis, watching Andy Murray. So I'd have to say, that but oh actually it's hard one because just a few years before well a year before in 2012 was the olympics so andy murray won that and then that built sort of the steam engine of everyone getting behind him for 2013 and being like please win wilburton you've won the olympics 
please. So I think definitely that was a great, great moment for British tennis. And also Venus and Serena winning the doubles at the Olympics as well. So I thought Olympic tennis is always so much fun to watch. I love Wimbledon, but I love Olympic tennis. As you were alluding to there, um, tennis is, is one of the sports that has been able to have some sort of like kind of limited return to action. Mm -hmm. in, Very in controversially, actually. So um, back in mid-June, one of the first big tennis events um, back on was the Asia Tour in Belgravia, in Belgrave. Um, and that was the one where a few days later, Novak Djokovic and Grigor Dimitrov and various other play players contracted the coronavirus. And like it got, so all these um, athletes now are really taking a backseat and being super cautious about whether or not to attend uh, future tennis tournaments. Because... Um, Nick Curios, for example, he didn't attend, but he was absolutely furious with the way that the tournament was conducted and how certain players like Alexandra Zverev um, was, not, um, was not following social distancing measures. Um, he, went on to go, he went on to say that um, the tennis world is a selfish place and he was disgusted by it. Um, and well, then again, Nick Curios isn't very, he's quite famous for having um, quite controversial statements. Um, in terms of big tennis tournaments, there haven't been many. So there's been a Progress Women's Championships in the UK, which is behind closed doors. It's a round robin and mainly only British athletes. So the most highest ranking player there is the number 85 in the world, which is Katie Balter. So not a big, big tennis tournament, but it's on the BBC. It's just started now. BBC I play at BBC Sports, still good tennis to watch if you're bored. Um, it's just whether or not the US Open will go ahead next month. Um, the US, as we all know, is one of the worst countries for the coronavirus right now. I think they reported 600,000 new coronavirus cases, which is terrible. And a lot of players aren't going to go, including Federer, Serena Williams. Stefanos Tsitsipas said he's 50-50. Jamie Murray's not sure. So we'll just have to see whether or not it gets cancelled. Probably won't be cancelled, but I don't, I don't think it'll be a big event like usual. Do, do, you, do you think with all those top players kind of expressing doubt as to whether or not they're going to attend, do you, do you think if the tournament did go ahead, it would be um, just completely undermined? Yeah, I'd say so. Part of tennis is such a big personality sport. Um, that's maybe one of the reasons why I like the Olympics. I just like the gossip and the drama. Maybe that's why I like tennis too. Um, and to not have those big personalities, it's, it just seems like a, it doesn't seem like a grand slam. And so, yeah, I think it would undermine it. And to think that someone wins it and says, oh, I've got a grand slam title. I've won the US Open 2020. They'd say, but did you? You didn't have to play against Federer. You didn't have to play against Serena Williams. It's, it is not, I don't think it's the same. It'll be interesting to, to see whether that tournament goes ahead. Uh, thank you very much for your thoughts. And now I'm going to hand back over to Ben for the Any Other Business segment of the show. Thanks, Archie. Now, this week's Any Other Business was inspired by my younger brother, surprisingly enough. He went on a... BA business flight to Geneva, and he met Bradley Walsh on the uh, in the business class lounge. And what? yeah, I know, <laughs> Ella. <laughs> That's amazing. He then claims to have gone to every pub in Geneva. And so my my question for you is, what sports person would you like to go on a night out with, and why? Should I kick off first? Then? Yes, kick off, Ella. Well, to be honest. Um, Going to a club with um, Bradley Walsh would be pretty cool, I'm not, <laughs> but I don't think it classes as a sports person. So I did have a think about this. Um, I thought maybe like a skier or a surfer, they love a good apre. So I thought maybe they'd be a good person to go to. But I'm going to go for someone, again, another person that you haven't heard of. Um, her name's Lolo Jones. She's from America and she's, she participates in both the Summer Olympics as a hurdler and also the Winter Olympics as a bobslayer, um, bob which is mad. Anyway, so the reason why I've chosen her is you need to check her out on Instagram or TikTok. She's absolutely hilarious. So she did this video where um, it's titled, Do You Want Abs? My Ab Workout. And it starts off like, oh, she's going to do some crunches, but no, she actually goes into a makeup drawer and gets a load of like um, lipstick and a load of eyeshadow and then just contours her abs and just makes fun of all the training that she has to do. 
also another thing is she was on Dancing on the Stars, which is kind of um, oh, Strictly Come Dancing, but in the US. And um, she got eliminated the first week, which I'm a rubbish dancer. So I'd preferably really would rather someone that I can't dance to dad dance with me. Because if someone shows me up on the dance floor on a night out, I'm just like, that's my, that's my amazing friend. I can't, I can't keep up with them. So I choose her really. Great choice. Now I'd move over to Angus. Who, what sports person would you like to go out with on a night out? Oh, you caught me off guard here a bit. I probably, I'd go with Andy Robertson, the Liverpool left back, I think, just because a bit of a Liverpool supporter and thing is the fact that his form's really dropped off since Liverpool won the Premier League. You can see he parties quite hard so because he, he's still on a bit of a bender from it. So I think obvious choice would be him. Uh, yeah, I don't know, don't know what else to say. Yeah. Thanks, Angus. Yeah. Now I move on to Archie. Archie, who would you like to go on, go on a night out with? I, yeah, I was thinking about this. I was caught off guard a little bit as well, but I think that a name that that uh, comes to mind immediately is Peter Crouch. I don't know if any of you guys have listened to his podcast, but he's just full of entertaining stories because he, he played for, I don't know how many clubs, but under some really uh, interesting managers as well, the likes of Harry Rennup. So I'd love to, to hear stories about those kind of characters in the pub. And then if his robot celebration is anything to go by, I think he'd be a bit of a hit on the dance floor too. So yeah, he'd be my pick. Thank you, Archie. And finally, but definitely not least, Gabriel, who's your pick? Um, I would go for Christian Streich. He's the uh, Freiburg manager. Um, and apart from the fact that he has a, a wonderfully difficult um, German accent, so it means that practically no one can understand him. Um, he's kind of known as like sort of like a quite, he's got quite a cultish figure in, in Germany and in German football as being uh, basically a firebrand philosopher. Um, he's incredibly intellectually motivated. He calls all his players colleagues. Um, he once went on a rant in the middle of a team talk about the ethical consumption of chicken um, and talking about how you have to, you, you might, if you're going to eat chicken, you may as well not have tortured, tortured food that's not had, you know, all these sorts of things that, uh, that, are, that you wouldn't really expect of a manager. And he's just unbelievably interesting as just quite a complex human being who doesn't, doesn't just sort of conform to this classic kind of footballer brand of, uh, of not really engaging in, in worldly ideas and, and, and being socially conscious. And obviously you have the rise of more socially conscious footballers and, and whatnot, but he's just this quite complex character. He cycles to all games. Like, I mean, it's just quite unusual for a premiership footballer, football manager to just be like getting on his bike and just go into your, to the match. But like he's, so he's obviously quite an unusual fella. Um, and yeah, there's a really nice write-up in the New York Times done by Rory Smith, who's also a great person to listen to on the Set Piece Menu uh, podcast, who uh, who wrote a bio, a sort of bio on him, and he's fascinating. Also, unbelievably difficult to understand in both English and German, but fascinating. Yeah. So, do you think that, he would want a traditional night out, or do you think he'd want to do something a bit more unusual? I think I think he would probably want to sit in some sort of dark Bavarian pub. <laughs> Uh, and just sit there with like a very sort of lukewarm beer and just stare into my eyes and talk to me about socialism or something like that. I, I don't know. I mean, I hope he'd want to entertain a conversation with me. I don't, probably not. But, um, but, uh, but that's, that's what I'm, I'm getting the sort of like glue. I don't know if you've seen Dark, the German TV show, that sort of like gloomy sort of brooding kind of foresty vibes fireworks in the middle of the black forest and like in the middle of nowhere like it's pretty difficult to get to um and he's just sort of sitting in some sort of tavern in the corner and you sort of like open up the, the curtains and like there he is he's sitting there with like a a pint and he's been sitting there for about three years he's like hello welcome <laughs> <laughs> that's what i'm envisaging but uh, i don't know maybe that just says a lot about me that i want to have a weird pint with a sort of gloomy middle-aged man but you know that's kind of Hell, let's just not delve too deep into the psychology behind that. Thank you. It's a great selection this week. <laughs> um, it's I, I'm torn between Ella's choice and Gabriel's choice, but I've got to go with Ella's purely on the basis that I am a rubbish dancer as well. Did you and, not go for Ella's choice last time? Yeah, as well? no, 
he's just I he's just pandering to you Ella. this is just a, this is a joke this is a... I was ready to contest Archie's actually because I was going to be like if you choose Peter Crouch everybody will want to have a photo with him and you'll be dancing in the club and also he's too tall so you can't and Archie's be like... you know a paragon of height as well you know <laughs> <laughs> I know I chose Ella last week but I just think purely on the basis that I'm a rubbish dancer and I wouldn't want to be let embarrassed I'd have to go with Lola Jones but thank oh, you, thanks, all great, thanks, all great choice. Gabriel, I would have chosen yours. Well, thank you, that's, that's kind. I mean, by, by virtue, just as continuing the chain, I would have chosen either Andy Robertson or Peter Crouch. Um, so let's just, you know, make this one whole big confusing draw. Um, no, sorry, Ben. I'm jumping with your parade. Lola, the, you know, I, I think that's a great decision. And, you know, uh, who wouldn't want to know about contouring ads and stuff as well? Because I, cool. <laughs> I could do with some, for sure. Uh, <laughs> Anyway, I'm going to pass back to Archie to end the show. Thank you very much, Ben, and thank you all for, for your thoughts. That was a, quite a bizarre end to the show, but hopefully enjoyable. Um, and please join us again here on Purple Radio in two weeks' time when, uh, when we'll be back to discuss uh, the, the biggest stories in the sporting world. Thank you very much and goodbye. Purple Radio Podcasts. Thanks for downloading this Purple Radio podcast. For more great content and to listen live, head to purpleradio.co.uk.